Greetings, dear listeners. Shadi and I sat down to do a quick episode today as Russia commenced its invasion of Ukraine. We talked about how we got here, what we could have done differently, and what happens next. We hope you find this real-time attempt at analysis useful and helpful at this really crazy time. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider becoming a paying subscriber. You'll get bonus podcast episodes, as well as special members-only written content. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and check it out. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Now, we started talking about what was happening in Ukraine. I mean, you know, all the intel as we started our book group was that uh, the invasion would start right at the end of the book group. And I was joking about that and sort of walking the uh, our... our our friends uh, through the scenarios of what would happen. And I mean, it's remarkable. It's, it's happening exactly along those lines. Um, and then, yeah, we had a, you know, I mean, we used, we used uh, the current situation to start talking about uh, the loathed Carl Schmidt. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously the discussion went in different directions. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's been a, it's been a long, it's been a long night. Um, had some people over and we we're watching TV up until like four in the morning and, uh, and talking about stuff. Uh, and so, uh, no, oh, that sounds like a party though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A party. It doesn't sorts. sound like work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a sort of party, I guess. Like, a it's, a, it's like how the Irish, uh, you know, and, and funerals, uh, you know, drink and, uh, and, and yeah, 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 that kind was of was it a big crowd? No, no, no. Um, it was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like four people. Not okay. not the reading group. It was it was uh, it was other people came over after. But you were like tr- you were talking. You were f- watching basically yeah, live yeah. what was going on. Watching live what was going on and, and watching Twitter and you know yeah. people calling friends on the ground and and seeing what's going on. What the getting getting impressions in, in real time. Um, grim, really grim. And I think it's going to yeah. get grimmer. It's yeah. going to get a lot grimmer. Really? Next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you know, we're rolling already, so I don't know where we'll cut in on this. But um, it's uh, – whatchamacallit? Hold on. Let me turn off my notifications here. Um, it's – you know, I mean, uh, what's happening right now is that uh, the Russians are uh, basically moving to encircle the capital, Kiev. Um Last night, before I went to sleep, it was mostly air barrages and, um, uh, you know, rocket barrages from across the border uh, onto uh, and from from ships onto basically bases and air bases and, you know, military installations around the uh, around the country. Uh, There were notable uh, attacks on civilian populations uh, by the looks of it. You know, several sort of apartment blocks were rocketed. but uh, you know the 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 clear like military goal. Clearly, there's a there's a military goal in, in terrorizing and and uh, and uh, demoralizing the population. Uh, there's certainly a, a goal there to create a a humanitarian catastrophe by driving you know thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Ukrainians perhaps into European borders. But um, mainly, the goal is to destroy the military and then uh, encircle Kiev as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, there have been, there've been uh, reports of attacks on the capital now, and that's likely to, to get worse, basically. Uh, you know, to basically make – the goal is to make the government to capitulate probably before the weekend or, you know, certainly before the end of the weekend. 
uh, and that's going to be bloody. You know, I, you're, you're going to have to terrorize people and uh, just make it unbearable, right? Uh, then the we, government capitulates, and then it's replaced by a Putin-friendly regime, basically? Is that the I mean, ultimate end? It's speculation at this point. Um, you know, it's it's... I think that's probably a safe bet at this point, which is to say that um, – how do you put it? Uh, it? You know, there was speculation that the goal would be to have the the current government capitulate and sign off three things. Putin requested those on Tuesday. Um, they were the three – even before the the attacks happened, but it was in a speech that he gave. He said that Ukraine must uh, – officially renounce any aspirations to NATO, must demilitarize, which basically, you know, the attack will will ensure that or will seek to ensure that to basically destroy the military. But I guess to pledge for remaining a demilitarized zone. And thirdly, to cede Crimea to Russia, to recognize that Crimea belongs to Russia. Those are the three demands that Putin made on Tuesday before any pretext for invasion was announced um, but under what under what legal grounds could Ukraine be demilitarized? It would no longer be a sovereign nation. It no, that's right. It would be something else. It that's would basically right. be. I don't even know what it would be called. No, I mean I don't know what I mean. Whatever. It's it's. Uh, I, I think uh, our friend Walter Russell Mead wrote a, a column about this when uh, you know a that uprising in Kazakhstan was happening, and basically the Russians, without really doing too much, managed to instill their guy. It's still not clear exactly what happened there, but it's, it's suzerainty is the word, it is basically, you know, in the, in the sense that uh, what, what Russia may want to try and accomplish in any of these things in, you know, recreating uh, some sort of facsimile of what the Soviet Union was, it's not necessarily to create a unified state, uh, it's to basically just have completely pliant uh, um, satellites around it that have no independent foreign policy, um, that are completely subservient to it, that basically outsource their foreign policy completely to to Russia. Um, so yeah, suzerainty, I guess, is the thing. And that's, that's what it would look like. Now, the question is, um, and I think a lot of people have been sort of speculating about this now, is that now that it's gotten going, um, it's not likely that the word of any government would actually suffice. So yeah, you know, uh, speculation that basically they'll be, if they take Kiev, they'd, they'd hunt down, arrest, and kill probably most of the government, and then, I don't know, install someone. Uh, that's the part for me that logistically seems hard to fathom, you know, and y- y- you try and sort of imagine what uh, what the sort of imagined end game as we try and imagine what they imagine the end game is uh I, I i don't know what that looks like i mean if it's really is installing someone then it is sort of setting up some kind of police state and ukraine's a big country and um you know they're they're resisting so you know the the likelihood of them actually being able to pull that off is kind of kind of difficult to imagine um and this may be Maybe one of the, the the key delusions in all of this, but I think it's still too early to tell. I'm not. I'm not. You know, some people are already saying. You know, gross miscalculation by um, by uh, uh, Putin's government and by Putin himself. I mean, his government, his himself. He did. He by all uh, uh, indications, he made this decision himself. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know how that plays out. I. I 
I, I, uh, I, I don't think we should be so glib as to assume that, uh, you know, a truly monstrous uh, solution to this is not achievable. I think one should always keep our minds yeah. open that something like that is possible. Can you talk a bit more about the nature of Ukrainian resistance? I don't have a great sense of this. I mean, how effective or powerful is the Ukrainian military? Um, do they have high levels of morale in in opposing the Russian forces? Are they going to fight till the bitter end? Or is there some point where we might see them surrendering or capitulating in, in some way? And how much does that depend on Western support in terms of... Um, I don't. I don't know what the what the level of of Western support is now in terms of additional weapons or logistical or advisory support, and how much that might play a role. So, look, um, the key the key thing is is uh, I mean that's the right question is is you know what is the state of the Ukrainian military, um, and uh, a lot will hinge on whether they can last through next week. Uh, in which case we're in one scenario or whether they collapse in the coming hours and days we're in case we're in, in case we're in another scenario and we can talk through that if it's interesting but uh, you know just to give listeners sort of a sense of of, of what's happening um, you know Ukraine's military in 2014 was really a shell it was nothing uh, it was uh, you know completely penetrated by Russian agents uh, so in 2014, when Putin uh, attacked initially, took Crimea with, without barely firing a shot, and then you know launched a war uh, in the eastern provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, um, uh, basically the military was able to hold off uh, kind of you know uh, ill-trained, uh, ill-disciplined Russian-backed forces in uh, those two breakaway regions. Uh, until the uh, Russian military stepped in towards the end of that that phase of the war and just you know demolished and in, in this famous battle of Debaltseva completely wrecked the Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainians learned a lot of lessons and they've been basically fighting a low grade war since then. You know the the front line with uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. There's you know hundreds of people dying, thousands of people dying. You know every year there on the front lines. It doesn't really make the hasn't been making the the front uh, the front pages of. Of anywhere, but it's been you know a simmering conflict. Um, so you know people sniping across the line of control, mortars flying, um, and yeah, people getting killed every so often. Um, so I mean, they've learned a lot, they've trained a lot, they've modernized their forces a lot. But the tragedy is that, um, as I understand it, the Ukrainian um, conception of what this war that you know clearly they they imagined could at some point happen. Um, would have uh, would have come from those regions that Russia would have invaded through Luhansk and Donetsk, and then you know tried to take more territory. So they had actually um, set up all their defenses facing in that direction, um, and you know in all the the, the process of, of of modernizing and the rest of this. I mean, it's a very different military than uh, the Russians were able to just completely crush in 2014. Um, that said, it's still a, uh, a process of reform. It's not like it's a, a modern uh, and completely, uh, you know, uh, successfully modernized military yet. And the real problem for them is that uh, in the buildup to this, since uh, this started in late November, um, and, you know, even more so this year, uh, when it became clear that Russians were sending troops to Belarus to the north and were uh, actually – putting amphibious landing forces on ships to the south, 
uh, that the Ukrainians are facing a three-front war, which they actually are in no way prepared to do, uh, to fight and actually, you know, triumph in. So the, the really, really grim uh, analysis here is that on the battlefield, they're kind of toast. Uh, you know, the Russians themselves just in sh- uh, have a massive numbers uh, advantage. Um, they uh, uh, are also, you know, prosecuting a battle plan that, again, like I said, the Ukrainians are not ready for, and they they have uh, a massive advantage in standoff weapons. I mean, uh, listeners may have heard that, you know, we talk about uh, arming the Ukrainians and there's talk about sending javelins and other sort of anti-tank weapons. That's all good and fine, but but really, and you've seen it in this war. Uh, the first barrages were, you know, attacks on bases from afar uh, to basically. Uh, not actually have to engage in tanks and, and, and you know, hand-to-hand combat. Um, so, you know, it's hard to tell uh, trying to follow this and, and get a sense, you know, the fog of war. There's been already a fair bit of uh, false reports and, you know, how these these modern wars seem to work. There's just lying left and right. And it's it's impossible to tell, you know, even though we're, we're uh, in the Twitter age and are able to get sort of, you know, real-time unfiltered reports – there's a lot of noise in the in the in the in the system right now, so it's hard to tell exactly how it's going. Um, but and on Western support, I mean, how much Western support for the Ukrainian army has there been since 2014 in in terms of advanced weapons and and training or or advice or there's been some training. advising battalions yeah. and so forth. There's been some training. Uh, there's been some modernization efforts. Uh, and but again, you know, there've been there've been also the 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 dance has been to not. Um, uh, you know, give, I guess, provocative uh, levels of support to the Ukrainians in order to not actually trigger exactly what has come to pass anyway. So there was a lot of this of, you know, let's not do this, let's not give them that because it would be provocative and the rest of this. And, you know, the Russians played the game carefully and, and, and you know, smartly as well. They they kept pushing and insisting on the, the Minsk process and the Normandy format, which was uh, set up after 2014, which was negotiations between France and Germany um, and uh, Ukraine and, and Russia sitting around the table to try and sort of come up with some sort of solution to uh, territorial, um, uh, not complete independence, but, but you know, uh, real autonomy for those breakaway regions, which in fact, going back to the whole uh, war goals, the idea of giving those regions autonomy would have been to give them blocking power in parliament to actually, again, basically prevent Ukraine from having a for- uh, an independent foreign policy because these are Putin-controlled, Russia-controlled proxies would have basically blocking votes in the parliament. So that, it's always been Russia's goal to you know geld Ukraine like this. Um, so there has been support, um, but it's it, it's been limited uh, in that sense. Now, you know, you've heard uh, perhaps... Hold on a second. No. Uh, you've heard perhaps um, uh, people like uh, uh, Blinken say that, you know, in the last year we've uh, given record uh, amount of money and aid. And yeah, again, uh, it's true. We have been aiding them. Uh, but again, the, the reality of the, 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 the sort of fight that I was sort of describing is that it's going to be – it's not clear to me, uh, you know, what kind of – what levels of aid would have even been – conceivable or realistic to actually have made a difference. So there's two things just to keep in mind, just to sort of close that thought. Um, you know, they can't fight on open terrain, but uh, they, uh, they can uh, potentially retreat into cities and then have the kind of really nasty, uh, really bloody guerrilla warfare take place at that point. Um, it's not clear to me whether that's happening yet, but really that is uh, 
um, that is going to be uh, you know one of the the possible ugly scenarios of this is that uh, you know as Ukrainians fall back. Um, as the army falls back, as sort of partisan groups, I mean, Ukrainians, there's a lot of guns floating around the country since 2014. Um, and, you know, there have been reports of uh, private citizens just stocking up on ammo. So there's a, a real potential for a kind of really protracted, uh, maybe even successful resistance movement that, that goes on for a while and grinds down. And that's what I was saying. You know, if, the, if, the, if they successfully knock out the government before the weekend, we're in one world. That's basically... Uh, "Quote unquote peace is restored of some sort. Uh, fighting, you know, drops off, and then you know the Russians don't are, don't feel compelled to actually insert troops to pacify anything. They're they're I don't think they're they're necessarily even looking for a stable state on their borders that they can control. I think they'd be just fine with an ungovernable, you know, smoldering mess that's you know loosely governed by proxies, and you know that then they fight uh, counter terror operations for the next." Uh, several years sort of, you know, trying to destroy the partisans. But if the Ukrainian military doesn't fall and then we're in a kind of, uh, uh, you know, open civil war, not civil war, an open war against sort of occupying Russian forces, well, then there's a lot more than I think the West can do in sort of sending troops and um, uh, keeping um, uh, keeping the Russians pinned down and or at least, you know, uh, bloodily engaged uh, in the war in Ukraine. Okay, a couple things. Um, it seems to me that in retrospect, the idea that we shouldn't give too much advanced weaponry to the Ukrainians so as to not provoke the Russians. I mean, that seems absurd now, because clearly the Russians don't need to be provoked to do terrible things in this regard. I mean, we're trying to be careful, and by we here, I mean Western powers more broadly and what we might call the international community, which, you know, doesn't exist, but whatever we want to call it, um, that the, we're trying to be careful. We're trying to avoid too much confrontation with Russia. And that that doesn't work with an actor like Putin, because he's always looking for signs of weakness, and he's always looking to take advantage of that weakness. So we might have good intentions of not trying to escalate or being very careful and cautious not to fuel additional distrust or misunderstanding, but Putin's going to attack anyway, and he has attacked anyway. So in, in retrospect, we shouldn't have been careful. We shouldn't have been, quote unquote, careful or cautious in this respect. What would uh, you say to that? Uh, I'd say the following. I mean, you know, it's the Ukrainians themselves have known what a precarious situation they're in. Um, the the speech that Putin gave at, at 5 a.m., uh, um, you know, Ukraine, Moscow time, uh, it's like 10 o'clock last night. Um he 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 very explicitly warned that if uh, outsiders intervene here, that I mean, he, he basically threatened nuclear war if outsiders uh, intervene. Said you will face consequences such as which you have never experienced in your in your history. Um, and so you know that's one thing that I think keeps uh, has and has always been clear to everyone sort of dealing with this is that on the ultimate escalation dominance. Uh, you know, Russia does hold all the cards. Like, if they're going to play all the cards, um, uh, you know, they, they, they can go that far. And that's, that's a reality that not just we knew, but I think the, the authorities in Kiev, whoever was um, 
was going to uh, be uh, in power. That, that they knew this, and so the dance always was building up capacities uh, slowly, carefully, um, and you know, in in a level of deterrence, but not going past a certain point that would necessarily provoke this. And that that's the game that the Russians were playing, basically. Concede, concede, concede in negotiations. Um, and don't don't you think that you can actually deter us in any way, in any meaningful way? Because as soon as we per, we perceive that we're losing the, the balance of power, we will preempt it on the ground. Now, you know, one of the, the, the uh, backstories of the last six months um, – and, you know, it's not dispositive. There's a lot going on. But one of the things that happened is Ukrainians uh, managed to get some Turkish drones and actually use them in conflict on the, on the line of contact uh, with the Russians in, in the breakaway republics. Uh, you know, going back into the waning years of Trump, there was a, a nasty war uh, between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an occupied yeah. territory there, um, which was decisive for the uh, Azerbaijani side. Uh, who had um, uh, a huge number of, of, of drones. Uh, the Russians were watching us closely. I mean, it's their backyard. Uh, they, you know, uh, ostensibly were backing the Armenians more, but both of those countries are proxies, and that gets into a whole wild, you know, uh, Russian foreign policy in its, in its, um, uh, in its backyard. But it's, um, they noted how decisive drones were. So, it's not the reason, the reason why they decided to go now, but it certainly played a role that uh, they, they felt that, you know, if this were allowed to continue on and Ukraine was allowed to continue building up its stuff, that they would find themselves in a much costlier conflict. So part of the calculus, at least on the Russian side, at least from the, from the sort of security standpoint, has been we've got to do this now because if we wait another year, another two years – they're not going to compromise. They're less and less likely to compromise. And by compromise, I, I don't mean to say that this is some sort of, you know, win-win solution. By compromise, I mean basically accede to our will and cede their, their independent foreign policy. We won't be able to impose it uh, as, uh, as at low a cost as we think we can get it now. So that was part of the reason to, uh, to go, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's, that's how I would respond to it. In a sense, the answer is that, like, it's a difficult, it's a difficult problem. Um, this is uh, – and, you know, we knew it and the Ukrainians knew it. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said and thought about is, you know, what's – you know, did we underdo it? Um, but, you know, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a different conversation, I think. Okay, so if the Ukrainian government survives past the weekend and is able to resist at some effective level, then then there's more the West can do, as you said. What what are the options that the U.S. and European powers actually have in terms of supporting the Ukrainian war effort against the Russians if this continues for several weeks to come? Um. I, I, I don't have the, the details of what the, the operational plans of that are. Uh, look, I mean, Ukraine borders uh, several NATO members. Uh, I, 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 I'm fairly certain that, that if there's one thing, again, though our intel agencies did acquit themselves fairly well, they've been predicting exactly this, uh, you know, since, since late last year, that exactly this scenario would happen. But if there's one thing our intel agencies do better, even better than, uh, 
than actually getting intelligence. It's actually, you know, fueling uh, low-grade sort of guerrilla warfare. So I, I'd be shocked if we didn't have all sorts of plans uh, to be able to do just that. And uh, it's more than likely that a lot of that is already ready and waiting in the Ukrainian, you know, there's, there's fallback plans for the Ukrainians to, to be able to accept that kind of aid, to fight that kind of, you know, nasty war. Um, so, you know, on that side, what, but the other thing that, that then happens, and it's also really worth watching, is that, uh, I mean, the, just, just in this first day, uh, the ruble completely tanked. Uh, the central bank was trying to desperately to prop it up, and from last I was seeing, wasn't really particularly successful. Stock market, Russian stock market is completely tanked. Uh, there's runs on foreign reserves in the, in the, in the country. It's possible that, you know, Putin, the grand military strategist and unable to take any sort of advice from experts uh, who either fear him or, you know, he just doesn't even care to listen to them or even ask, uh, may have underpriced that. Um, uh, And that, you know, in that sense, this is why uh, if this is not something that um, that ends quickly uh, for Russia and they're committed to the war longer, I think you will get more support from uh, and more unity from Europeans uh, alongside the United States to actually really tighten the screws on sanctions because uh, the markets are reacting very badly and then sanctions on top of that could could prove quite crippling uh, to the Russians. So that's actually one part that, 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 that could be important. Let me just one, – one more thought on that. The, the reason why I say it's so critical to know whether this ends quickly or not is that if um, – the war ends, I do worry, I am concerned that in fact at that point you're going to start getting a lot of people saying, well, okay, this was horrible crimes, we're going to prosecute them and, you know, human rights have been, but a lot of stuff will start heading back to normal, some kind of level of normalization. You can already sort of sense it in sanctions and some of the sort of self-serving, again, easy to be critical. The Europeans, their economies are much more... um, open to, to these shocks than we are for energy, for, um, uh, you know, for, for business, for all sorts of things. I mean, the pain in Europe of actually having really effective sanctions will be, will be serious. And the Russians will be able to actually do, you know, counter economic warfare on a lot of this stuff. So I'm not saying I don't want to, you know, talk down the sort of European thing, but I think it's an inflection point that if the, the shooting war ends and then there's some sort of puppet government in Kiev, even if Ukraine is split into two, I think the impulse among, uh, among Europeans may be to actually start to normalize things. So what I'm looking for is calls for ceasefires, for uh, things like, you know, we need to de-escalate with the Russians. We need to save the Ukrainian people. If, if you start seeing that right now, uh, I think you'll see exactly which way the game is going. Because honestly, the, what needs to happen right now is like there's no way the West should be calling for anything like that until the Ukrainians themselves have actually given up the fight. And, you know, I, I know my European friends very well. I know how this, this bullshit goes. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that to start to happen. It won't happen in the next 24 hours. 48, 72 hours as this gets uglier and uglier you're going to start getting that kind of stuff, the, the, the regular human rights, the, the regular UN crew starting talking about, you know, bringing peace rather than, uh, rather than seeing this thing actually uh, play out, hopefully as negatively as possibly for the Russians. I mean, there is unfortunately a European history of appeasement in this regard. Yeah. But I, I, I wonder, so it seems to me that the key is for the Ukrainians to keep on going for a few more days and then... Time then is more in the favor 
of the U- of the U.S. and Europe because at that point the Russian economy will continue suffering, and that's where the that's where Putin and the people around him will really feel pressure. And just ordinary Russians, of course, and also Russian oligarchs and and the Russian elite are already suffering considerably. I'm seeing here the Russian stock market. Um, was almost down 45% today, um, which is remarkable. And I see someone here saying that it's one of the biggest single-day meltdowns in modern market history. So if you're a Russian oligarch and half of your your wealth in stocks is being cut in one day, that's presumably not going to make you very happy, especially if you don't see any way out. It's one thing that if it ends in in three or four days and then you have a hope that things will get back to normal. But if this continues for weeks or possibly even months, that's where you probably will start to see Russian grumbling um from various sectors of of the population, is um, that fair to say? Fair to say, ish, with caveats. I think it's it's um, you know it's speculative. You know, our friend Ben Judah has done a lot of work on this. Um, uh, the 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 oligarch class, called the kleptocrats. Um, you know, I, I think the the other reality is in the last, the last ten years. The, the dynamics of that have changed in a lot of ways. I mean, they used to be sort of semi-independent actors who, who in fact, uh, you know, go and live playboy lifestyles in the West with mistresses and wives, you know, and their children studying abroad and, you know, uh, laundering their ill-gotten gains and, you know, basically just washing the stuff through our stock markets and our real estate markets. So that was the reality. Uh, part of the reality of the last five years or so is that, you know, um, part of the growing pressure on this has, in fact, allowed Putin to consolidate a lot of that. He's picked his own oligarchs who are less, you know, playboy cosmopolitans, less people that made their money as, you know, bandit, um, you know, semi, semi, uh, semi-criminal, uh, violent, private uh, enterprise types in the 1990s. And it's much more his security clique that has bought up a lot of this sort of stuff, a lot of the, the assets, a lot of the, the you know, the, the state, uh, if not state-run, state-controlled, but very state-adjacent and state-benefiting uh, state organi- uh, companies in Russia. They're all owned by a tight clique around Putin. And so, you know, one argument against or at least uh, one caveat against sort of the increasing sanctioning process is that uh, in doing so, we've, we've, we've not necessarily – you know, that, that they're diminishing returns at this point, that these people are in Putin's boat, that they're, you know, they're rich as as almost anyone, but pretty much resigned to, you know, living ridiculous, lavish lifestyles within Russia itself, being, being you know, uh, just unimaginably wealthy in, a, in an otherwise quite poor country. Um, I think the, the, the paradox here, and it's, it's one of the, the interesting things to watch, though, is, as you say, the Russian people, rather than looking at the oligarchs. Because, again, you know, Putin has successfully uh, more than just, you know, oligarchs. He has centralized power very successfully. That, uh, you know, while he still is sort of at the top of this thing, and there are ways that perhaps, you know, discontent within the ruling elites might dislodge him, I think the, the, the more interesting bet is uh, is, in fact, the broader Russian people who, 
you know, I, I think it would be it would be uh, wrong to to you know ascribe a certain kind of thirst for democracy there. I think that the sort of social contract among Russians broadly outside of the sort of you know liberal uh, cities, the major cities, but the the social contract that Putin has had with the Russian people is um, you know don't complain too much as I sit here and control power. Uh, but I will I will make sure that you have a basically good standard of living, and I'm there to to care for you. It's basically that kind of uh, you know classic uh, authoritarian trade, right? Competence and 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 state management for for a decent life. Um, and it's always been speculated, like what is the point at which uh, that breaks down? That that it gets bad enough for the average Russian that they say, what exactly are we doing? What is this shit? And it is striking that. You know, the justifications that Putin has publicly given and the, the language he's used and the, the sort of the rollout of this war internally actually has been quite slapdash. Um, has been, it's been poorly explained. It's been poorly propagandized within, within Russia from what we can see looking outside, like uh, monitoring the TV and the, the announcements. So uh, I, that's maybe another place where he's, he's, he's not paid enough attention and that in the long grind, if in fact the West is able to maintain the kind of pressure and you have a real meaningful drop in, uh, in living standards across Russia, that some questions might start arising and you might start getting some kind of civil unrest. Um, not necessarily, again, you know, to our debate about, about um, uh, what's it called, uh, you know, peasant revolts versus democratic revolts, but certainly unrest in any case. Uh, across Russia, just asking the question, what is this shit? This is not what I signed up for. Well, this gets us, I think, to a really interesting set of questions about whether or not Putin is, quote unquote, rational or Mm. irrational, Mm. which I think has been a preoccupation in some of the Western debate around this. Understandably so, I think, for many observers, especially those who assume that Putin was a bad person, but at least a strategic one, that this is catching them off guard. I am not someone who follows this closely. I am caught off guard. I am somewhat shocked that this is actually happening, even though I am someone who appreciates that some humans are evil and there's nothing necessarily irrational about being evil. I mean, there's a kind of logic to what Putin is doing from the standpoint of his own worldview. And maybe this is where and I, <clears throat> I should say to listeners, the single best thing that I've read on Putin's rationality or lack thereof is, of course, Demir's, <laughs> Demir's piece about this, which I strongly recommend. I'm not saying this because it's wisdom of crowds. I mean, that's maybe part of it, but it is actually the best thing I've read because I've been struggling with precisely this question over the past couple of weeks. Like, will Putin really do this? It seems to be counter to his own interests. And up until now, he's been perceived as a strategic, you know, that he is calculating. That is always what we say about Putin, that he is kind of devious and cunning and calculating. And he knows how to bring things to the brink. But he knows also how to test his limits. And when he faces resistance, he might step back. And then he'll be able to claim some victory. This That doesn't appear to have happened in this case. And that's caught that's caught a lot of people flat footed. But what you say, Demir, in this piece, which is called Negotiating with Madmen, and we'll include a link in the show notes, is that 
to understand Putin's motivations, we have to remove ourselves from our own Western premises that war is fundamentally irrational. And what you argue is that there are rational reasons to seek war. There are rational reasons to seek, maybe even if we can use this term, destruction. But it requires us to stop thinking like Western liberals. And that's difficult for us because we're like, well, well, he can't, he can't possibly really want this, right? And we're sort of, you know, you know, in this sort of, yeah, we don't know how to process it. So can you help us process it? You know, the, it's sort of like a, a, a polemical note to insist on, on Putin's rationality, largely because people are saying he's irrational. But I think that the, the, the better sort of, you know, move to make is to let's just discard the category you know and it's to just sort of face what's before you and and not try and think about this because the fact is that you know i think the 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 better question to be asking is is you know uh okay this is his plan um it's uh, a bold one. <laughs> it's a very risky move. Uh, what are his weaknesses, and how do we how do we approach that? Instead, you know, there's there's this this uh, armchair sort of psychologizing um, about about you know uh, you know interests and, and and what needs to be done. And I, I honestly, I think it's in doing that. You know, it is this kind of weird mirror imaging. We imagine what would hurt us and what would what would be. Um, painful to us and we imagine how we'd be deterred by us and therefore we propose policies that uh you know don't necessarily actually you know are are not necessarily effective to to the goals we we uh, we may want so you know I, I i think that's the better way to think about it I, i'm i'm i i keep sort of arguing that i argued it you know in a different way in the piece um the piece was more about sort of you know facing uh uh certain incommensurabilities in, in worldviews and that we shouldn't necessarily see compromise with them. I think that was what I was driving for in that piece. Um, but, uh, you know, on the very question of rationality, I just think it's one of those things that, it, you know, it, it actually doesn't help us face the challenge that we're facing. Um, you know, uh, one, one can talk about uh, the, the songs and dances that the West had with, with Hitler when he was coming up, but even much more uh, closer to, to my time is, is the kind of psychologizing that went along uh, during the Balkan Wars and, and talking about, you know, madmen, strongmen doing this, that, the other thing, murderous madmen and, and insanity. It's not very helpful. You know, it's it's look at what's happening and what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it and where can you apply the most pressure? That's what we should be really investing all of our uh, energy in and moralizing about it a lot less. Um, and again, look, I, I, I what, what I'm open to saying is always on this is I'm not a politician. I don't need to be making the moral case. Biden should be getting up right now and and talking about, you know, the, the evils and the threats, the, the you know, the, the kind of um, – moral challenge that this presents to what we consider to be good and decent and you know the people must rise up for this and support him and we need to support the ukrainians to the hilt that's fine uh just from a a a a policy standpoint the reason why i react to it so negatively this sort of reason fetishization is because is what i was getting at earlier is i think it 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 also it undergirds so much in our current western mindset is that like everything we've built is is lasting progress that it's actual moral progress and we're more rational we're more able to understand and see and calculate about the world and create a better world 
And all of that, I think, is an antithesis when you're dealing with a situation like this. Uh, it blinds you in so many ways and, in fact, predisposes you to compromise. Compromise with something that is not worth compromising with. Not not, not, not worth compromising with, but is actually not compromisable with. Put it that way. Well, I want to I get back to this question of compromise. But before that, let me quote something from your piece, if I may, with the disclaimer that Hitler is mentioned here. We are not saying that Hitler is equivalent to Putin, but it is still a useful comparison. So this is what you say. Okay. To write off Hitler as merely an unreasonable madman is to render his hold over the German people incomprehensible. Black sorcery, in quotes. Um, Black sorcery gets at the heart of the matter much more aptly. Hitler's starting premises are irreconcilable with our own. But his first commitments are also powerful appeals to real aspects of human nature. And then you describe this worldview. And I mm-hmm. like how you characterize this. You, this is how you describe it. This is, quote unquote, a worldview grounded in grievance, suspicion, and loathing. And it may be hideous to contemplate, but it is coherent. And moreover, it is plausible and durable. I like this because it gets, at, I think, your fundamental argument which is sometimes there is no compromise to be had. Sometimes there is no middle ground. Sometimes there is nothing to negotiate. If by negotiate, we mean splitting the middle with an opponent. We have our worldview and Putin has his, and they are fundamentally irreconcilable. So there isn't any kind of positive sum scenario here. At some level, we win if he loses and he loses if we win, so on and so forth. And and that is perhaps a more useful way of looking at it because, as you said, it helps us avoid this trap of thinking that there is a solution that both sides can be happy with. Perhaps there isn't, and that means we have to gird ourselves for serious conflict, not just as it relates to Ukraine, but as it relates to Russia's future, as long as Putin is alive, which means and then there are implications to that, of course, that we should or we may have to increase defense spending significantly because there is no way for us to coexist in this in this global world with a with a Russia that has Putin at its helm. And therefore, we have to, in some sense, try to defeat or even destroy Putin. And I don't mean destroy in a military sense, but we have to basically, I, you know, at some level, we have to destroy his economy and do whatever we can to um, to defeat him. And we can debate wh- what this what this line of defeat actually looks like. What does it mean to defeat Putin? But it also applies to China. At some level, we will get to the point where we will have to defeat or significantly counter and roll back Chinese influence in the world. That may require maybe not a direct military confrontation, but it it means that there is no compromise that can be had with the Russian and Chinese regimes. So here's here's how I just tweak what you said. Um, and where I think irreconcilability uh, ends up playing a role, um, it's it's not uh, it's not about. I, I would say where, where what's impossible 
and what's irreconcilable is that is an idea that a compromise will lead to uh, a kind of stable equilibrium. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of the the criticisms leading up to this war have been that the West has not tried hard enough. And, you know, again, I, I think a lot of these critics were taken aback by that the Russians were yielding nothing, but that there was, you know, that there's a, a place where like a, a good win-win solution could be had. Um, it, it is important to keep in mind that one can still have an idea and a guiding principle that the on, on that on first principles and on ultimate goals uh, things are unre- irreconcilable, but still come to uh, certain kind of truces in the in the in the part of a long struggle, but that at the same time are always tactical, and you're always thinking tactically. You're never thinking in terms of um, you know, well, this is uh, this is done. You know, we're good. Um, I, I, I think that's that's uh, that's the key sort of way to think about this. That's that's important. So you know, I think the danger of overstating the irreconcilable thing is that every conflict, therefore, is an existential one, and we we have to fight to the death. I think that's overstated. My main my main uh, argument here, though, is the importance of not losing sight of the fact that this is not a uh, that there's a you know a likely peaceful long term equilibrium that would emerge if only we do X Y and Z they will reciprocate with A B and C and you know then we can understand each other and it'll be fine and stable I don't think that's the case I exactly think that's the and yeah. and so this doesn't preclude coexistence just to be clear yeah but we can only coexist with Putin in a context of American and Western supremacy I think that's right that is something that we can live with and accept but anything short of that is going to be an endless set of conflicts and and um, a situation that is untenable. Um, and that's why I think, uh, but feel free to disagree, that the priority in the coming weeks, months, and years has to be reestablishing Western supremacy in this regard, that we have been somewhat asleep at the wheel or dormant. There's been a perception of American weakness, this, I hope, will have aroused us from our relative sleep or dormancy, and we will have to do whatever we can to reestablish dominance militarily, certainly. Um, that doesn't mean militarily over Ukraine per se, but certainly, um, well, I don't know what that looks like, and that's part of the issue, and I'm just thinking out loud here, yeah. but... There has to be some kind of um, the reestablishment of a perception of American dominance in a particular sphere. I look I, very broadly. I think yeah, defense spending is going to have to go up. Uh, specifically, if we're if we really are going to take you know uh, China seriously. I mean, I, I think the question for both you and me is is looking at sort of American internal politics and, and wondering about how likely that is and how that plays out. Uh, on more narrowly or in other way to look at it more broadly uh you know the the question for europe um and it's one that that we at the atlantic council i think are are working at quite hard is in fact uh you know will europe wake up and that's why most of my these these diatribes about rationality and stuff like that i I, i'm I'm less concerned with with sort of americans even though i think this administration falls into these traps of, of of uh you know uh, rationality mirroring more than others, but I think the American people more broadly are, uh, you know, Walter Russell Mead's terms that Jacksonian impulse. I think you can rely on that to to sort of transcend that kind of uh, you know very very liberal progressive you know world think. 
but the real challenge is in Europe and, you know, how how Russia gets countered. Now, I, you know, there's 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 talks that, you know, we need to increase uh, spending. There have been some analyses at AI that say anywhere between like 70 to 100 percent of current baseline would still be far underneath what Reagan was spending at the end of the Cold War, but that that would then give us the kind of means to actually, you know, credibly deter both China and Russia. Um, but, you know, I think what we're working at the Atlantic Council is really hoping, working with and, and waking up the Europeans that they need to be actual partners to this. Uh, that, that you know, and, and, you know, what if there's, if one can so, so, uh, uh, callously describe uh, what's the catastrophe in Ukraine right now as having potential a silver lining is that it has to be a, a wake-up call to the Europeans. But as I was saying, again, this could play out in many other ways. I think these these instincts are very um, uh, entrenched uh, among sort of European thinkers and that if, if this war is uh, quick and however bloody it is, but if it's quick, there will be a um, – there will be a, a pull to, to – to not engage in the world uh, in this sort of like hard power world on their part. That would be bad in general uh, because in the long term, you know, I, I, I think that, that, that uh, there are limits also to American supremacy. I think that there's this well you can keep going to about sort of American, you know, Jacksonian impulse. But I don't know. You tell me. I, I feel like America's also changed in the last 20 years um, that the, the sort of, you know, post-Cold War, post-9-11 – mantle of global cop i mean remember george uh w bush ran against clinton initially before 9-11 as you know uh we're not the world's policemen stop with this crazy shit you're doing in the balkans and everything else like we need to we need to turn back in this keeps coming back and keeps coming back stronger in every sort of wave of american internationalism uh so i i wonder you know i mean i think for on the, just in a narrow european thing is we need the europeans to step up and actually shoulder some of the bur- burden and face the world as it is on their own borders america's not going away from europe but uh, a different balance on the continent needs to reassert itself there uh because i do think that in the medium term it's completely unsustainable what we're what we're driving towards so i think you're right that in the last 20 years we've certainly seen this shift in our own country um but I wonder, I wonder if that can change if there are enough external shocks such as this one. So as you mentioned, when it was Bush v. Clinton, um, sorry, Bush, wait, sorry, no. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oh, no, not v. Clinton, right. It's uh, Gore, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that changed. And how did Bush change? Because there was an external shock that was unexpected, 9-11, and that aroused Americans from, and obviously that wasn't for the best ultimately, but putting that aside, sometimes you do need to be awoken from your slumber. Um, Maybe not quite to that degree where you invade um, a foreign country on false intelligence and so forth. But this is obviously a very different case. And maybe we can talk at a different point about how this, I think, has made the left look really silly, because here they are trying to draw a moral equivalency between Putin and the U.S. and saying that NATO was provocative, and you're hearing a lot of this sort of um, tanky rhetoric. Um, tankies is a reference to those who still supported the Soviet Union after the tanks rolled into Budapest in 1956. There are basically the modern equivalent of tankies today, and they just look like they have eggs on their faces. I mean, talk about being on the wrong side of history, although I know you don't like that, Demir, but I think, but anyway, putting that all, putting that all aside, 
where was I going with this? <laughs> Tana, I mean, I was saying 20 years and, and American commitment to sort of, you know. Yeah, primacy. so now maybe, maybe now a growing number of Americans, including elites on both sides of the political spectrum, will kind of realize that there is something they agree on, and that is that is reestablishing this idea of American supremacy. Now, of course, the Republican Party is divided, and that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Um, who in the Republican Party actually um, regains their hawkishness when it comes to America's role abroad and those who have a soft spot for Putin because Putin is manly. Obviously, these two things overlap in interesting ways that one of one of the re- so they say, oh, look, America is weak and feckless. If only we could be more like Putin. Well, yeah, if we could be more like Putin in, in terms of our own approach, then we would be fighting Putin a lot harder and we would be much more anti-Putin. So there's a kind of incoherence to this idea. Oh, we're feckless. Well, yes, if you think we're feckless, then maybe now's the time to stop being feckless and for us to unify around a more hawkish, quote unquote, foreign policy and increase in defense spending arming the Ukrainians and trying to rally Europeans behind a common vision in 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 their own neighborhood. So I but but that's what I'm hoping for. So yes, we have been relatively feckless for the last whatever 10 to 15 years. Um but maybe now we can change and move in a different direction because enough Americans will have realized that oh, this feels a little bit more existential. We're not just playing here. We're not debating intellectual or academic arguments. This is going to have major effects on, you know, not just Europe, but also, I mean, obviously we see how the stock market's being affected. This does affect the future of our own country in a way that I think may be more tangible than a lot of Americans have appreciated up until now that we can't just see this as something that is happening abroad this is something that will affect us inevitably in ways that ordinary Americans will feel. So um, maybe maybe a, a, a good way to wrap up on that point is, is this, and I guess it's something I'm watching. It's, it's something that occurred to me earlier this week. There's a poll that, that said something, you know, depends so much, depends on how these things are phrased, but it was about, you know, uh, what America's role in Ukraine should be. And I, the question didn't ask explicitly about troops. Maybe it was vaguely... Put, down, put in that way, and maybe people read into it. So that's why the numbers were skewed so much against American involvement in Ukraine. But it was a striking poll, and I think it was like ABC did it. I'll try and track it down, put it in the, in the poll, in the show notes. I forget, it was like 26% saying we should do nothing, uh, 26% saying we should have a role, and then the rest either undecided or, or against. Um, and the thing that, that struck me there, and even as you were talking right there, Shadi, is, is, is the role of you know, being able to, I think, explain these things in a coherent way to American voters to actually build up that, that, that kind of story that is credible um, and that, that resonates. Uh, one of the, the, the things to watch on the American side is, in fact, uh, these are, there's likely to be – if this does – you know, economically uh, draw out for a while, and Russia doesn't have a cathartic moment, or and you know Ukraine is fighting and it's a nasty war, and we're just doing sanctions for a while. So we will also feel economic pain on this. And what struck me about the Biden administration is I think it's done a, a, a pretty good job, in fact, of 
convincing and corralling European allies uh, to hold the line during the run-up to this war. We'll see how, how much that line holds, as I said, in the messy sort of uh, unraveling of all of this. Um, but they've did a good job of, you know, really doing uh, public diplomacy and behind the scenes to really just keep people lined up. Um, part of the fact, though, is that Biden is, you know, he's an old man. He doesn't really, he's not, he's never been a talented speaker. Um, and he hasn't actually been explaining to the American people that well what happens. He's done a few speeches to update people. I think as we finish this recording, he should be giving a speech right now. Um, so I, I certainly haven't listened to it yet. Maybe he's about to uh, explain it to the American people in a in a way that, that, that is resonant. But those kind of poll numbers make me think that or at least make me worry that uh, as economic privations are kick in, already there's a lot of blame uh, on among Republicans about you know Biden you know with his with his uh, uh, spending policies and you know inflationary shocks after COVID and the rest of this all just sort of coming down the line uh, that if prices start skyrocketing and it, it, like life becomes you know worse for Americans that connection that you're making that you know that that those are outcomes of not tending to the world more. But uh, are just the you know the kind just become a sort of partisan you know shitball uh, where we're just you know blaming Biden for mismanaging. I think it could it could spin easily the other way. So it's something to watch. I think going forward is whether the Biden administration, whether Biden himself can can really summon uh, the oratory, and whether speechwriters can come up with a kind of uh, coherent narrative to to achieve what you're you're pointing to. Um, I'm I'm not convinced that that we're we're nearly that close to it. Um, and I it's again the 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 fascinating thing in the Cold War is again how successful the Truman administration was in just setting the tone for uh, for a generational conflict. Um, yeah, I mean oratory and messaging I think is are, are some of the weakest points of this administration that does make me quite nervous. Um, and. You know, sometimes we overstate the importance of rhetorical powers, as we did with Obama. But sometimes you need you need someone to speak to the American people in a compelling way. Yeah. And I just don't see how Biden is really up to the task there. And I don't know if there are surrogates who can do a good job or who have the kind of stature to play that role yeah. um, in yeah. the Democratic Party. I'm not even sure who, <laughs> I can't even think of anything right now, but it is too bad this administration has been extremely weak on messaging. Um, and that is probably going to hurt us in, in various ways going forward. That's it for us, dear listeners. On that note, have a great day. <laughs>